So what would you say is wrong with the world? I just want you to think about that question for a moment and try to come up with an answer. Feel free to even write it down. What would you say, if someone were to ask you, what would you say is wrong with the world? For we can't really go a day, let alone a week, without being reminded in the news that there is something deeply wrong with this world that we live in. So the trial's now begun for Dylan Roof, that young man who sat very pleasantly in a congregation for a good 45 minutes noting how kind everyone was to him before he pulled a gun and cold-bloodedly killed nine African-Americans there at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, this week, you had a small American Ohio State University student who drove a car into a crowd and then brandished a butcher knife and just went after the bystanders who was there. In Mosul, news this week that over a thousand civilians have been killed in recent weeks as Iraq has tried to retake Mosul from ISIS. You know, I could just keep going. Whether or not we're talking white supremacists or Muslim extremists, many would say the problem in the world is too much religion. I think that's how many would answer that question. The problem in the world is, in fact, too much religion. We don't want our politicians to talk about religion. That was very clear in the 2012 presidential election. It was evident in this most recent election how little religion was on the lips of those who are running for president. We don't want prayer in our public schools. We don't want religious displays in our courtrooms. We don't want religious symbols on national monuments. Even the ever-lovable Chip and Joanna Gaines Right, if you know that story this week, they found themselves in hot water. There was a hit piece by BuzzFeed columnist Kate Arthur, and she effectively implies that HGTV ought to drop the show. And why should they drop the show that brings in the most viewers on cable on a Tuesday night when they just have their New York Times bestseller book there? Why now? Because, brace yourself, it's been discovered that they're actually members of a historically Christian church. And that was the news this week, which only underscores, I think, that for many people today, the greatest problem in the world is too much religion. It's too much religion. Well, what do you think? Would you agree? Well, I want us to think through that question in part by turning to a new study this morning, by turning to the book of Galatians. So if you've got a Bible, let me turn, encourage you to turn there and open up to the book of Galatians. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, you can find that on page 972, on page 972. So go ahead and open up. And as you turn, as I said, this morning really marks a new series, a new start as we take um, a look at this book. It's going to lead us into the new year. And I was a series I was going to start last week, and then I realized it was Thanksgiving Sunday, and so many of you would be gone. And so we're actually doing the first two weeks, if you're following that sermon card, we're actually doing the first two weeks this morning. But Galatians was a book written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, of his Paul's 13 books, it was likely the first book he ever wrote. It is the uh, longest after um, you got the books to the Corinthians. 
It's a long book. It's probably the earliest book that Paul ever wrote. And it's a book with a, with a real storied history because perhaps more than any other book of Paul's, maybe any other book in the New Testament, it gets right to the heart of what does it mean to be a Christian. Right, what's the good news, the gospel that Christians say they believe? And so it lay really at the, at the center of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, that famous reformer, He wrote two commentaries on this book, one in 1517 there in Wittenberg. It was so instrumental in his own understanding and coming to faith. He wrote a longer commentary years later, deeply instructive for him. It's a book that Luther said, the words read like a thunderclap from heaven against every form of human righteousness. Because as we get into this book, one of the things that we're going to find is that these young Gentile... Gentile just means non-Jewish. So these young non-Jewish believers living in what's modern-day Turkey and parts of Syria, they were in dangerous territory of actually abandoning the very gospel that had just saved them. And so Paul is going to spend six chapters calling them back to the gospel that saves And before we get into really our text in chapter 1 and 2, I want to give us just a brief overview of the book of Galatians so you feel like you've got sort of the weight and balance of it. It's really not the best idea to jump in and to look at a verse in particular. If you don't know the surrounding context, you don't know the argument of the whole book. So what is Galatians about? Well, for an overview, if you look down with me, verses 1, 1 through 5, Paul's going to give this plea that they know grace and peace. They know gospel blessings. That's his desire. But as you get into verses 6 through 9, this gospel plea, well, it's revealed he's praying that because there's this great gospel problem. There are outsiders who have come in, and they're distorting this gospel that Paul preached. And thus, they're leading the Galatians to desert the gospel. And as we go through, we're going to see one of the ways they've led them to desert it is by actually adding to the gospel that Paul preached. They're teaching that belief in Jesus as the Son of God for sinners, actually that's not enough. You have to be circumcised as well. You've got to follow the the prescriptions of the Old Testament laws that relates to food and festivals and the like. So it's Jesus plus these marks of obedience. And so in one ten through 2, chapter 2, verse 21, Paul is on defense from charges of his opponents. His opponents seem to say that Paul got his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. And yet in order to earn a favorable reception among the Gentiles, he decides to edit it. He decides to distort it by leaving out those requirements to be circumcised, to live according to the law. And to which Paul replies in one eleven through one twenty four that his gospel is actually not dependent upon anyone in Jerusalem. It's not dependent upon any man. It was given to him by divine revelation. Nor had he distorted the message in Jerusalem, for he's going to say in chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, that those in Jerusalem actually agreed with his message. They didn't require any of Paul's converts to be circumcised. And so then in 2.15, all the way through chapter 5, verse 12, Paul's going to have a defense. He's going to engage in a, a rich biblical and theological defense of his gospel. That there in 2.16... The Christian is saved not by works of the law, as you'll say, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He'll go on to say that true sons of Abraham are not those who've been circumcised, but, chapter 3, verse 7, 
those who have faith in Christ. Four, chapter three, verse 10, all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. All right, so why was the law given? Well, he says, chapter three, verse 24, the law was given as a guardian, as a custodian, a sort of custodian so that until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, it was to lead us to Christ. It was not something we add in addition to Christ. And then he's going to close chapter 5, verse 13 and following with some of the consequences of the gospel. The gospel frees us from legalism, from obedience to the law, but that doesn't mean we're now free to pursue sin as we wish. Rather, we're to walk in the Spirit, we're to love, we're to give ourselves over to others in obedience to God. So that's a quick overview of the book of Galatians, and if you want it sort of succinctly summarized in a verse, I think Paul's argument of the whole book is this. The good news of the gospel is not what God requires of us, but what Christ has accomplished for us. You want the argument of the book of Galatians? I think that's it, at least as best as I can tell. The good news of the gospel is not, in fact, what God requires of us, but it's what Jesus has accomplished for us. All right, so with that sort of overview in hand, let's now look. Let's jump into Galatians chapter 1, and let me read through chapter 2, verse 14. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And yet even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with them 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, well, to them we do not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came... He drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so we're going to stop there. I know that's a good bit of text. Most of the text we're going to have in this series won't be quite as long. But there's a lot of autobiographical information where Paul's restating and really reinforcing the same basic point. But I want us to return to that question for a moment. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Because actually Paul seems to say that part of what's wrong with the world is religion. Religion as we tend to conceive it. That is a main problem with the world that you and that I live in. And to this religion, you can call it bad religion if you want, but to this religion, Paul responds, there is only one gospel given by God and to add to it, is to abandon it. That's his summary, 1-1 through 2-14. There is only one gospel given by God, and to add to it is to abandon it. And that summary sentence is just going to serve as the points of our outline this morning. 
So first, there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. We see Paul teach that in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1. Those first verses in 1, 1 through 5, as I said, they pick up the major themes of the letter. The divine origin of Paul's gospel, right? Not from men, verse 1, nor through man, but he says through whom? Through Jesus Christ. And there's a defensive tone in Paul's language right at the outset. He's on the defensive. Clearly, there are people speaking poorly, falsely about him to these believers in Galatia, and he's on the defensive. His credentials are being questioned, and so he's going to clarify for them, and he's going to focus on the divine commission and appointment that God has given to him, and he's going to pick that up further in verses 11 through 24, chapter 1. But he's going to say, listen, the gospel's not unique to me. Notice he says in in verse 2 that it's also shared by the brothers who are with me. As with the apostles, he'll say in Jerusalem in 2, 1 through 10, the gospel's going to deliver, as he says, from the age of slavery and sin. He makes that clear in these first verses. He's going to highlight that in chapters 4 and in chapters 5. Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 1. This resurrection... Is the major turning point in human history. And Paul's going to come back to this as well. It marked the end of the old age, the end of the law, the inauguration of the new. So to go back to the Mosaic law, to add that law to the work of Christ, well, that's to try to turn the clocks back. It's, try to, it's going to try to go back in salvation history to the days of Moses, to go back to a world where there was no Christ There was no defeat of sins. There was no promise and giving of the Holy Spirit. It's to go back to slavery, which Paul's going to highlight later in this sermon, later in the book. And so these opening verses are all about the source of Paul's gospel and the substance of that gospel. And he's cluing us in right at the outset, the kinds of themes that are going to be picked up in the book of Galatians. And the key facts of the gospel, he even lays out there right in verse 4. Jesus, we read, Jesus gave himself. He gave himself. Now listen, I don't know how you've understood Christianity But I hope you understand this very basic fact central to Christianity that Jesus' life was not taken from him. It wasn't taken from him. It wasn't some horrific accident. There wasn't crisis in the heavens. The angels weren't scrambling to figure out what to do. God didn't have a look of shocked horror upon his face when Christ hung upon the cross. Jesus freely freely offered up his life, not merely as a display of love, not merely as some act of heroism. Why did he freely offer up his life? It says he gave himself for our sins. Jesus' death, it was a sacrifice. It was most basically a sacrifice, not because we were so worthy, not because we were so beautiful, but in fact, because you and I were so dead and so sinful. That's why the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, had to lay his life down as a sacrifice. Our condition was that desperate that God had to go to such means in Christ in order to save us. To what end? Well, he says there in verse 4, to deliver us to deliver us, to set us free, to rescue us, he says, from the present evil age. 
realize the message of Christianity is not that God came in Christ to give you a second chance. That's not the message of the gospel. Christianity is most basically a rescue religion. It's a rescue religion. It's not a reform religion. Jesus is the great teacher, and he gives you what you need in terms of education and and so forth, and therefore you can inform yourself to save yourself, to live better. It's not a reform religion. It's not a relaxed religion. Hey, just, just don't get so uptight. God accepts you as you are. It's not a big deal. Just embrace yourself. All will be well. It's not a kind of relaxed religion like that. It's not a riches religion where follow Christ and get the blessings of this world. It's not an empowerment religion where you follow Christ and now you become the better you. You can be the real you. It is a rescue religion. He came to deliver, to rescue, to save. You and I, we are dead in our sins, utterly hopeless. There is nothing, even in these first verses, we see there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing. You need to be rescued. The whole world needs to be rescued. And that, my friends, is what Christmas is about. It's one of the reasons why we're going through this book in anticipation of Christmas. And that's why Paul gets so worked up in verses 6 to 9. This letter is unique. If you know Paul's letters, there's no customary thanksgiving. There's no customary prayer. There's no praise. There's no commendation following the greeting. Paul doesn't ring the doorbell and politely say, hey, can we come in and have a chat? Paul breaks down the door and he breathes thunder at them. He is livid. He's deeply concerned. He calls them out as spiritual deserters. He calls them religious turncoats. They've abandoned. They've deserted the gospel. He goes right at it. In verses 6 through 9, I am astonished, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right? This is the problem. It's laid out here, 6 through 9. We see that there are some troubles, some in verse 7 who are troubling you, who want to distort the gospel. And in effect, what these people are saying, as we looked through Galatians a bit earlier, is that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. You had to bear on your body the mark of circumcision to identify you as one of the people of God, as it had with Abraham in the Old Testament, which is one of the reasons why he's so concerned as you keep reading about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, etc. You have to be circumcised, and you've got to follow the law. And it's the very kind of teaching here in Galatians that if you know the book of Acts, that really precipitated that council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, In order to be saved, you needed to be circumcised. And Paul's going to deal with this issue. The Jerusalem Council will finally deal with this issue in Acts 15. They're saying, in effect, these troublers are saying, in effect, you've got to go back to Moses to finish what Christ began. Got to go back to Moses to finish what Christ began. You have to complete what Christ left incomplete. That's the message that these troublers were teaching those in Galatia. And yet Paul's going to say that if he or even an angel from heaven should preach a gospel like that, let him be accursed. He's going to include himself. And lest the Galatian church misunderstand the force, he says it again. That if any should preach a gospel contrary to what they first heard, let them be accursed. That word accursed literally means anathema. 
it carries that Old Testament notion. When we were in 1 Samuel, we noted how God called some things devoted to destruction. It carries that same Old Testament idea of something being devoted to destruction. And Paul's not talking here about excommunication. He's not talking about church discipline. He's actually talking about eternal condemnation. So don't confuse this with you know, Roman Catholic notions of anathema. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope can declare anathemas upon people, as he did upon Martin Luther and what he taught from this very book. The Pope can do that because the Roman Catholic Church understands the Pope is, falls in the apostolic succession to Peter and literally speaks for God on earth. And he, therefore, has the power, the Pope, to condemn people eternally. But this is nowhere taught in Scripture. This is not at all what Paul's saying. Only God has the authority to finally condemn. We only stand before him at the end of our lives. And we're going to see with Peter in just a few minutes that even the best men, even great men like Peter, they're still men. They're still men. And they will render fallible judgments. But what's clear about these troublers is Paul doesn't understand them to be believers. He doesn't understand them to be believers. There's only one gospel. There's only one way of salvation. And this gospel, it's not a matter of mere human opinion. He's going to say eternity hangs in the balance, which is why he used that word anathema. We don't save ourselves. God must save us. So if you've come this morning, if you've come as a non-Christian, this is the very essence of what true Christianity teaches. The essence of the gospel is that God saves. Period. God saves. He doesn't merely make a way. He doesn't merely show us the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he saves. We don't save ourselves. He must come down, and he must save us. And he does this because he made us. He made us in his image. He loves us. And yet we've gone our own way. All of us, every day, privately, publicly, we don't want to live God's way. We have our own ways of doing things. We have our own desires and ambitions and, and things that we prefer and things that we pursue. And so we, we choose our own way. And every time we do it, every time we reject God for ourselves, that's what the Bible calls sin. And there is judgment on the basis of that sin because God is a good God and he's a holy God and therefore he judges sin. But because he loves in Christ, he sent his son down to live that perfect life, the one who never ever fails God, the one who never goes his own way, the one who knows God's word and believes it and trusts it and lives by it. And he died on the cross to deliver as a sacrifice for sins. So all of those who would abandon their way and say, God, you are right. I know you are right. I trust you. I believe in you. I look to cross to Christ and the cross to cover me from my sins. When we repent and place our faith in him, trusting in his resurrection to put away our sin, we're saved. That's the basic message of the gospel, that God has done it from beginning to end, and we don't contribute toward it. He has done it in Christ for us. All we bring, if you will, are the empty hands of faith, and we take hold of this, of what God has done for us. But just a word to Christians. I mean, that is the gospel, but the the thing we need to be reminded of is that it is so easy to depart from that gospel. They hadn't been Christians long and already they're departing. And notice how they're departing. The greatest gospel threats are often not 
those outside who persecute, but they're actually coming from those within who pervert. So often that's how it is with Christianity. Our greatest threat, it's often not outside these doors and windows and walls. It's actually from within by those, not who persecute, but who would pervert the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The devil seeks often to destroy the church as much by error as he does by evil. It's why it's imperative as a church that we don't assume anything about the gospel. It's why as a church we have something like a statement of faith that clarifies this is what the gospel teaches and this is what it doesn't teach. It's why if you seek to join this church, I ask if you can, in good conscience, sign that statement of faith. No settled, no settling convictions against anything in it. Because it is the gospel that saves. And it is so easy. It can be so easy to walk away from it. It's why folks who come to join the church, I actually ask them, give me the gospel in 60 seconds or less. And sometimes, if they're not ready for it, they're a little paranoid. My pastor did that to me when I went to join a church. Give me the gospel in 60 seconds or less. I'm like, ah. Like, I got to give the gospel to my pastor. Um, I get it. But I don't do that to be mean. I do that to be loving. To make sure that there's nothing being assumed, nothing that's misunderstood. Because when you start to assume the gospel in one generation, it is to guarantee that that same gospel is lost in the next one. The moment we start assuming what Paul lays out so clearly, it is a short step before we lose it altogether. There is one gospel, one gospel. And yet, I know this sort of one gospel, one way, it conflicts with all of our popular notions about the many ways and the many paths there are to God. I know for many years, that's what I believed, right? All religions effectively teach the same thing. Streams leading into the same ocean, they all arrive at the same destination at the end of the day, right? Paul's exclusionary gospel here sounds very ill-mannered, if you will. It sounds perhaps even unloving. And if Paul made it up, yeah, that's what we could charge Paul with. Yeah, if this is your gospel, if this is your concoction, it would be unloving. But as we're going to see in verses 11 to 24, Paul didn't make up this gospel. He's going to say, no, this gospel comes from God himself. It's not my invention. God has revealed it to me. And so to say that there are many ways to say that Jesus Muhammad, Buddha, myself, really there's not a difference at the end. In the end, we're all our own saviors. You know, to say, you know, God, I I can get to you on my own. I I don't need your one way. I can get there on my own. It's just to say, you know, God, I'm really sorry you sent your son. Realize you didn't really have to do it. You didn't need to do it. Jesus certainly didn't need to die. I'm sorry he suffered so. I'm sorry it was so in vain because there are other ways, much easier ways. I'm sorry you went through all that pain. I'm sorry Jesus suffered as he did. There was, of course, another way. That's what we say. That's what we say to God. That's what we say to his son's sacrifice every time we say, yeah, there's not one way. There's not God's way. There are lots of ways. But Paul's going to say, no, The Bible-believing Christian humbly understands 
humbly understands that there is nothing more unloving than granting false assurance to those who are perishing. Because God has given and spoken one way, just one. And Paul doesn't say this because he's trying to please people, verse 10. The Greco-Roman world, Paul wrote into a world that was very theologically pluralistic. It accepted a plethora of theological views about God. And so Paul's gospel reeked of exclusivity. It would be seen as proud and obnoxious and unloving, except for the fact it's not his. It's not a man-made gospel. It's God's gospel. It's not Paul's religious musings. It's God's word. Right? There's only one gospel. Second point, it's given by God. It's given by him. We see this in verses 11 all the way down through verse 24. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He says, listen, it has no human origins. Didn't originate with me. For I did not, verse 12, receive it from any man. I wasn't taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And of course, there he's referring to his Damascus Road experience. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. And then 111 through 221 is really this long argument supporting Paul's claim that he's not seeking to please men because the gospel that he preaches came from God. That's the basis of his whole argument, and everything else is going to support that. How do we know? He's going to say it's not a man-made gospel. It came by that divine revelation in the first verses, 11 and 12. He's going to say, listen, in verses 13 to 14, consider who I was. I was a gospel persecutor. That's what he's going to say in verses 13 and 14. I was the rising star. I was the golden boy of Judaism. I was the one at the head of the class persecuting Christians. I was the one extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, advancing in Judaism beyond many of those of my years. Right? We would call Paul, as a, as, as a Jewish individual, before his conversion, we call him a terrorist, we call him an extremist, and yet he was assuming, along with all of his Jewish brethren, that all of his works were earning him favor with God as he persecuted Christians. And friends, that just serves as another reminder for us. That the gospel calls us out of religion, as many define religion. The gospel calls us out of religion as much as it often calls us out of irreligion. It will call us out of both, of misunderstandings on both sides. But he's going to say, don't consider merely who I was, this persecutor. But he's going to say, consider who I've become. I've become this one now who proclaims the gospel in verses 15 to 17. He notes how he was set apart before he was born. That alludes to the calling of the great prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, set apart in the womb to proclaim God's good news. He's saying, listen, friends, I didn't volunteer for this Christianity gig. I wasn't the first in line to go get saved. I wasn't attending the Christian rallies and listening to Christian music. I was trying to kill people who were doing that. I had no interest in Christianity, none whatsoever, until God stopped me in the midst of my mad career. He grabbed me by the collar, and he called me back. That is the only way you can explain what happened to me. That's what Paul's saying. 
it was not about Paul becoming a better, fuller version of himself. It's not getting meaning and fulfillment. Paul is stopped by God, saved by God there on the Damascus Road, and given a charge, a charge to go out and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in verse 16. And yet he's going to remind them, hey, I did that, but I never consulted with people in Jerusalem. I didn't, my gospel wasn't dependent upon any men in Jerusalem. I ministered in relative obscurity, he says, in verses 18 to 24. You know, my first trip to Jerusalem, he says, was three years after my conversion. It only lasted two weeks, and I only met two apostles. That's it. This gospel I preached didn't come from any man. It came from God. Which is why, if you come and you reject this gospel, Paul's saying, don't make any... Don't make any mistakes. Don't misunderstand. To reject this gospel is, in fact, to reject God. To reject the gospel is not just to reject an opinion. It's actually to reject God himself. Because Paul's not merely offering up his opinions. Paul's giving God's settled opinion of who we are and what he has done to save us. And Paul says this not to frustrate you. He doesn't say this to infuriate you but to lovingly inform you that all is not okay, that this world is not okay, that you and God are not okay, but that he has made a way in Christ for you to be reconciled to him. But Christian, I just want you to consider, as you just even think about Paul's autobiographical story, consider the, the power of this gospel from God, the supernatural power of this gospel to transform. Paul was the last person in the world that you or I would ever have expected to be saved. The last one in the world. Nobody believed it was true. When you read through Acts, everyone was suspect. There's no way this guy who's been killing us is now preaching for us. They didn't believe it. So just reflect upon your life for a moment. Who in your life is that most unlikely person to be saved? Come up with a name. Think of a name. Who's the most unlikely one to be saved? Because the world effectively says people don't change. People don't change. They are who they are. The gospel says, oh, really? Are you so sure that people can't change? Gospel blows that up. Paul's own testimony blows that up. Nobody is too lost to be saved. Nobody has sinned too badly, transgressed so deeply that the long arm of the Lord can't pull them back, can't grab them by the collar, can't save them. I love John Bunyan's reminder. He says, do not thou conclude that because thou canst reach God by thy short stump, that he therefore cannot reach thee with his long arm? Look again, hast thou an arm like God, an arm like his for length and strength, for it is long and none knows how long. Friends, that's God's arm. It is long and it is strong to save. Do you believe this gospel that transformed Paul can transform others? Do you believe that it can? Do you believe it can change them? I mean, think about it. It's changed you. And realize they're not degrees of deadness. We were all dead in our sins. If the gospel changed you, it can change another who was dead. So do you pray like this gospel can transform? 
It can make the dead alive. Do you share freely? Do you share boldly out of that confidence that it has the power to change? Friends, I hope you do. I pray that you do. I pray Paul's example would be an encouragement to you. I pray your own testimony would be an encouragement to you. Because if it can change Paul, and if it can change you, why in the world would you not assume it can change the most unlikely person in your own life? There's only one gospel, and it's given by God. But Paul has one final thing to tell us. Third and finally, It is one gospel given by God, and to add to it is to abandon it. Thirdly, to add to it is to abandon it. That's really what he highlights in chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And in 2, 1 to 10, Paul highlights how 14 years now after his conversion, he finally goes to Jerusalem to actually spend some time with the pillars who are there in Jerusalem, with the apostles who are there. And he reveals the gospel that he's been preaching to the Gentiles these past 14 years. And what he notes is that these pillars in Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 6, he says what? They added nothing to me. They added nothing to Paul's gospel. Indeed, rather, Paul says they affirmed. They affirmed my gospel, the gospel I proclaimed. Remember, Paul's opponents, they argued that Paul's gospel was derived from Jerusalem, and then Paul distorted it to win favor among Gentiles. But Paul's going to say, nope, not at all. I didn't, my gospel wasn't derived from Jerusalem. God gave it to me, revelation of Christ, and the folks in Jerusalem actually confirmed my gospel. That's what 2, 1 to 10 is all about. And the proof is seen there in verse 3. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Hey, you troublers, if your gospel was true, the folks in Jerusalem would have made Titus get circumcised, but they didn't. They agree with my gospel. Galatian Christians, the gospel I preach to you is the gospel that is affirmed by others. These folks who have wormed their way in are seeking to lead you to astray. They're distorting and leading you to desert. That's his argument. And the amazing thing is that circumcision, for Paul, that lay at the very heart of his Jewish identity. I mean, for thousands of years, how do you know who's a Jew? If you're male, at least, obviously. How do you know who's a Jew? Well, are they circumcised? That, it's just at the core of Paul's own theology. And now he's going to say, amazingly, verse 4, that to impose circumcision to be made right with God, he now calls that slavery in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Right? These interlopers, these church crashers, if you will, these folks slithering their way to lead these saints astray in Galatia. Paul says, They're false brothers. They're troublers. Make no mistake. They're not Christians. They don't lead you to gospel freedom. They actually lead you back to slavery. For seeking a right relationship with God based on our works, seeking a relation with God based on our moral effort, always will leave us exhausted upon that treadmill of guilt and insecurity. Seek a relationship with God on the basis of your own works, and I guarantee if you have any notion of God's holiness, you will exhaust yourself on that treadmill of guilt and of insecurity. You absolutely will. 
And Paul understood that to add anything to this gospel of grace that he was given and that he preached, that was to abandon the gospel. The truth was at stake, right? He said the truth of the gospel. He wants it preserved. It's at stake. Because we love to add things to God's word. We are marvelous at adding things to God's word. We love to impose rules and regulations in order to get to God. Why do we do that? It gives us a sense of control. It gives us a sense of accomplishment. That our relationship with God in some degree lies within our power. We can secure it. Right? It's exactly the error of the Pharisees. It's the very error of the human heart. And what's remarkable is these troublers, these false brothers, notice what they would have preached. Would they have preached that Jesus was the Christ? Absolutely. Would they have preached he was the Son of God who died to take away their sins? Absolutely. Would they have preached that he rose on the third day? Yes, they would have. But it's not what they subtracted from the gospel they preached. It's what they added to it that condemns them. Because the gospel is never Jesus plus. That's not how it works. It's not Jesus plus circumcision for these folks in Galatia. It's not Jesus plus baptism if you come from a Church of Christ background. It's not Jesus plus church membership. And you know I love church membership. It's not Jesus plus happy marriage. It's not Jesus plus no alcohol. It's not Jesus plus a proper Sunday dress. It's not Jesus plus the mass or Jesus plus church attendance or Jesus plus great degrees of emotional enthusiasm or Jesus plus this gospel high to gospel high to keep us in the faith. Paul's saying all of that, that's all bad religion. The world is full of that kind of stuff. The problem with the world is that kind of stuff. There is too much of that kind of religion because that doesn't save. All that does is condemn We have to distinguish between the essence of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So baptism, commitment to local church, all implications of the gospel that they themselves don't save. And if you ever hear me saying that, you can rebuke me publicly as Paul rebuked Peter. It's that important. The essence of the gospel is that Christ alone saves. That when he cried out on the cross, it is finished, he wasn't merely expressing a wish. He wasn't saying, you know what, I've done my part, now go finish it off. Go do yours. I tried, I did the best I could, but now it's dependent upon you. That's not what it is finished meant. It meant it was finished. It meant he saved. There was nothing you could do even if you wanted to do it, which is why Jesus says, I did it all for you. It saves. Now listen, maybe you've come in this morning and you're realizing, actually, I think I've misunderstood Christianity all along. I thought Christianity was about all that stuff. You thought Christianity was, what about, was about what God requires of you. And that's a mistake everyone seems to make. I hate reading the papers sometimes. Every article I seem to read in the paper seems to understand Christianity like this. They just don't get it. But friends, if you've come this morning and you thought Christianity was all about what God required of you, oh friend, be free. Trust in Christ and be free. Get off that treadmill of guilt and insecurity. Get off it. Trust Christ. He ran that race. He finished that race. You're not going to beat his time. 
right? He got it. Just trust in Christ and be free. The gospel is not the good news of what God requires of you. It's what Jesus accomplished for you as Paul's at pains to make clear. It's why he's so apoplectic with Peter in 2.11 to 14. Why does he get so upset at Peter? I mean, here we have 2.11 to 14. We have one of the most dramatic episodes in the New Testament. We got the two great leaders of the church. Think of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is pretty much divided between Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry. Two great leaders. And they go like head to head, mano a mano here in 2.11 to 14. And they're in Antioch, the most prominent Roman city of Asia. Hundreds of thousands of people. Estimated maybe 25,000, 50,000 Jews there in Antioch. It was the cradle of the gospel if you weren't in Jerusalem. Remember, Antioch was where Christians, or followers of Jesus rather, were first called Christians. That's right here in Antioch. And Peter and Paul meet in this public confrontation. Because Peter had been eating with Gentiles. So we read back in Acts 11, we heard the story of Cornelius and how Peter understood that there was nothing God made that was to be considered common or unclean. All was to be enjoyed. The gospel was for Jew and Gentile. We got that little sermon earlier that was awesome. Like Jew and Gentile, we got that. And yet, when these troublers come from Jerusalem, Peter, verse 12, draws back and separates himself from the Gentiles. Not because his theology has changed, but what does it say? Because he feared the circumcision party. My friends, the more you read the Bible, the more you see the fear of man proves to be a snare. We thought about that a good bit in 1 Samuel. You will keep seeing it. The Pharisees, even Peter, the fear of man, he bows to it. He cowers to it. It is a snare. He bowed to that pressure to please men. And of course, the great irony in Acts 10 was that it was Peter who said, what? Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And yet here he is showing partiality. It's why he's called a hypocrite, which is just a good application for us. A sobering reminder that leaders, even the best of leaders, leaders like Peter, leaders stumble. Leaders will stumble. They are to be respected. Yes, they're not to be venerated. They are to be honored. Yes, they're not to be exalted above the gospel. James 3.2 reminds us that we all stumble in many ways. Spiritual giants like Peter stumble. No man is perfect. It is humble to know if a man like Peter can stumble. Oh my word, how in the world can we stumble? How much do we need God's grace to keep us from stumbling like this in the face of the fear of man to keep us from cowering as well? And it's not a minor matter because notice what happens when Peter stumbles and cowers. Who does he lead astray? He leads Barnabas astray. He leads him astray such that, verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That little phrase, the truth of the gospel, we saw it in 2.5, it comes back again. This is not, again, a matter of minor opinion. The gospel is at stake. By adding to the gospel, Peter and Barnabas now have abandoned it, just as the false brothers had by requiring circumcision. Friends, this should serve as a warning to us, right? Our sins have implications upon others. The decisions we make, 
implications, just as Peter's did with Barnabas. And that's especially true of anyone here who's in leadership. That would include moms and dads with kids. That would include bosses at work. That would include those who disciple others and have other Christians look up to them, especially true of Christian leaders, whether it's deacons or whether it's particularly elders. People will imitate our behavior. And I just wondered as I was thinking about this, Peter will say, he doesn't give a qualification list for elders, but the one thing he does say is that elders are to be what? They're to be an example to the flock. I wondered if he thought about this example, when he wasn't an example to follow. But elders are called to be examples to the flock. Elders who sin gravely, it's why they need to be corrected publicly, 1 Timothy 5.17, so that they wouldn't lead many astray. Because we don't live in a vacuum. None of us live solitary lives. For good or ill, our lives are watched, our examples are imitated, and our sins can be infectious. So who in your life might be suffering from the contagion? Who in your life might be suffering from the infection of sin in your own life? Think hard over that question. Who might be suffering? And we've got to also admire, though, the great courage of Paul. Because we think, okay, Paul, like, this is what Paul does. He just, like, bull in the china shop. He goes at it. But if you actually read Paul's letters, that's really not his normal way. He's passionate about the gospel, but he doesn't like just to beat people up and abuse them. This would have taken great courage from Paul to confront Peter publicly. I mean, think, Paul hadn't walked with Christ as Peter had walked. Paul hadn't been persecuted like Peter. He hadn't been taught by Christ as Peter had. He didn't have the respect of all the Christians in Jerusalem as Peter had. And the easy thing for Paul to have done when he witnesses all that's happened and Barnabas who had worked with him being led astray is to say, you know what, maybe it's not that big a deal. I'll keep my mouth shut. I don't want to rile the pot, ruffle any feathers. You know, I'm just going to, God will sort it out in the end. You know, we do that kind of stuff all the time. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? Because he understands love, when it comes to the gospel, is not about leaving others alone. Love entails the courage to confront. And it's hard. He'll stand alone often. But that's what Paul does, and he does it humbly. He does it. We ought to do it, recognizing when we need to confront when you're saying the gospel's at stake, we do it humbly. We do it recognizing that we stumble, that we ourselves need to be open to correction, that we've got to be careful about thinking we have the spiritual gift of admonishment. I once knew a Christian who said that was their gift. Their gift was being a truth teller of admonishment. And other than being a person not too fun to be around, frankly, not the most humble of people because their eyes are only perceptible to the sins of others and they are not welcoming critique themselves. It's a very against the humility of the cross. Whenever we confront, we don't do so proudly. Paul will say in Galatians 6.1, right, we restore gently, he says, gently with those who wander with great humility and love with no sense of pride and self-righteousness. Well, friends, I hope you've begun to see something of the gospel that Christians believe. Because I know when I first heard it, it was a hard thing to hear. Right? I thought I was a good person. The gospel says otherwise. I wanted to play a part, and Jesus said, guess what? You got no part in this one. Right? You would fail miserably if I gave you a part. 
I wanted to say, look at what I've done. And he said, just forget about it. I didn't want to depend solely upon God. I mean, how humbling is it when you take the collective work of your entire life and lay it before God and say, what does it earn me? And he says, nothing. That's a humbling thing. That's a hard thing. I wanted Jesus plus me, my contribution. We all do. We want to come to God on those terms. But he calls us to come to him on his terms. Friend, there is only one gospel given by God, and to add anything to it is to abandon it. Every religion in the world is a religion of do, of what we contribute, what we add in order to save ourselves. And in that sense, the world and the problems with the world is very much that there's too much religion. There's too much of that kind of thinking where there were systems and rules and regulations and, and we follow them and puff ourselves up and we become our own saviors. But Christianity is unique. It says actually that's not how it works. It calls us to rest not in what we do, but what Christ has done. The good news of the gospel that Paul's already at pains to make clear is not what God requires of you. It's what Jesus has accomplished for you. There is only one gospel given to us by God, and to add anything to it is to abandon it. This is the good news. There is no other news. Is it your news? Is it your hope? Let's pray.